Hello and welcome back to Arbitrary and Capricious, the podcast of the C. Boyden Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm the center's director, Adam White. Now, as many of you know, for the most part, this podcast has been event audio. We've just recently begun interviewing guests on new scholarship books and so on. Um, And now that everybody has some extra time on their hands, as we're all socially distant from one another, we thought it would be a good opportunity to interview some friends on new articles that they've put out that are well worth the attention of the administrative law community, scholars, and practitioners. And where better to start than with a new article by William Bode of the University of Chicago. The article is titled, Adjudication Outside of Article 3. That's Article 3 of the Constitution. The article is the lead article in the new issue of the Harvard Law Review. Will, thanks for joining us. Hi, it's truly a pleasure to hear your voice. (laughs) So let's start with the very basics. The Constitution says that the judicial power of the United States is vested in the Supreme Court and those lower courts that Congress makes. That seems pretty straightforward. It seems pretty difficult for agencies or any other tribunals to adjudicate things, or am I wrong? Uh, You are wrong. Uh, (laughs) I mean, so, of course, this is right about a basic intuition, right? All three of the the first articles of the Constitution each create their own branch of government. Article one creates Congress. Article two creates the president. Article three creates the federal courts. And it does seem logical that those grants are supposed to be exclusive. You can't create, if we didn't like the current president for some reason, we can't create like a second person called the the Schmesident and give that person all the powers they're supposed to go to the president. Because Article 2 says, no, no, they go to the president. Uh, And so the same thing seems like it should be true of the Article 3 federal courts. Uh, There they are. They have life tenure. Uh, they can't have their salaries taken away, and that's on purpose. So Congress can't just go around setting up a, a second court system next to them to to do what they're doing. And yet, it looks like that's what the administrative state uh, has become, right? It's got all these uh, agency administrative law judges, legislative courts uh, sort of milling around outside of the formal court system. The thing that I, I, I think you do really well in this article is you've really brought things back to basics um, and encourage your readers to look past um, sort of terminology that might be confusing and look at constitutional first principles. The Constitution doesn't speak in terms of adjudication. It speaks in terms of the judicial power of the United States. And so even though for a century or more we've talked about agencies or other tribunals adjudicating things, you say the point is not to look at a process. The point is to look at a power. And so, and and the power being um, exercised on behalf of the United States, therefore, the judicial power of the United States. And so your article is sort of a reflection upon what both of those things mean in theory and in practice. And by the way, reading it, it, it I might have this wrong, but aren't you in a way sort of going back to the beginning, one of your very first articles you ever published was on the judicial power or on the, the judgment power. Isn't that right? <laughs> that is right. That's great. So, yeah. yeah, just to amplify the first thing you said, right, the the thing that makes it look like we have all these other courts running around is that they you know, do things like hold hearings and decide cases, and issue opinions. And, you know, you think, wow, that looks like that's what courts are supposed to be doing. You know, it's being done by by other folks uh, who are not courts. And, yeah, what I try to say in the paper is there's nothing magical about the act of adjudication. That's just a way of making decisions. So if Congress wanted to, you know, decide which post offices to put where by bringing a bunch of people in and having a sort of like adversary hearing where something will make the case for, you know, Michigan and some will make the case for another state. They could do that 
ultimately they'd still be passing legislation. Or yeah. if the president uh, wanted to have a, a reality TV show where he let different people compete for a pardon, you know, and, and then make the case for why they should get the pardon or somebody else should get the pardon. And at the end, you know, he'd say you're pardoned. I mean, you could do that. Uh, it'd still be pardoning, even if he had a, a different procedure for getting there. So the thing we got to keep our eye on is what power is actually being issued. And yeah. you're right. What I say, what, I, what, I, what I've said in previous writing, and this really goes back to you know, first principles, principles that predate the Republic, you can find in Blackstone and tons of other uh, old documents, is that what's special about courts is they can issue binding judgments that can essentially take away your property or your liberty or even your life. Um, they can say, no, you have to pay money to that person or you know, that property doesn't belong to you anymore. They can say, you have to go to jail for for years for the rest of your life. They can say, you know, you're going to be executed on such and such date. And the executive branch and the legislative branch, they can't do that by themselves. So the real question we ought to ask for an agency is not, you know, is it adjudicating? Is it acting like a court? But we ought to ask, is it taking away people's life, liberty, or property? Right. So there's the judicial power side of things. And let's just spend a moment on the second part of that, the judicial power of the United States. When the Founders, you know, wrote and ratified our Constitution and created that judicial branch that's vested with the judicial power of the United States. It didn't sort of single-handedly get rid of state courts, right? They exercised the judicial power of the states. The trickier part, and it's a part you spend a fair amount of time on in your article, is the territorial courts, right? Yeah. These tribunals that are created. They're not. They're not creatures of the states. They are, in a sense, creatures of the national government. But you, you. You argue that they didn't um, exercise the judicial power of the United States. What do you mean by that? Yeah. So, and, and I, I led with administrative agencies because I assumed listeners of this podcast would care about them more. But you're right that that true true to my heart and to sort of people who have been forced to read these cases in a federal courts class uh, will be this idea of of territorial courts, which have been non-Article Three courts. And the Supreme Court upheld them in an opinion in the 18, early 1800s uh, by Chief Justice Marshall called American Insurance Company versus Cantor. And he said, you know, there are these courts oh, out there. Just, just a footnote, yeah. uh, as you point out, I love, I love this. In a footnote, you say, actually, the better, the, the, the proper name for it ought to be American Insurance Company versus like 160. Well, 356 bail, yeah. Bales of cotton or something. <laughs> so, so that is it, that is its actual name. That is what it's yeah, called yeah. in the U.S. reports. If you look in the U.S. reports, that is its name. Yeah. Uh, and Gary Lawson, who's written some of the best work on this, you know, says to his dying breath, he will defend that name. He's correct. That's its name. Uh, I, I, sorry, I didn't want to take you. I don't want to no, derail no. you. I just love that point so much. Okay. Right. It's but, just it's not what people call it. So I yeah. so. So, so in know, the Cantor case, the Bale Hay yeah. case, <laughs> uh, the the Supreme Court said uh, it's true these courts are not constitutional courts; they're not the courts that are that are talked about in Article Three, but they say they're okay anyway because they don't exercise the judicial power of the United States. But they don't explain what they mean by that. So, yeah. so what they mean by that is actually they're much more analogous to the state courts than people have realized. So, you know, again, it's intuitive to think, well, Illinois, Massachusetts, Virginia have their own state courts. They don't. They're, they're not an Article Three problem because they don't exercise the judicial power of the United States. They exercise the judicial power of the state of Illinois, the state of Massachusetts, the state of Virginia. So what's going on in the territory of Florida in the Cantor case with this territorial court? 
Mm-hmm. Well, if you go look at the statute that created the court, it turns out it's phrased the exact same way as state constitutions talk about their state courts. It says the judicial power of the territory of Florida is vested in the following court. And you look at all the territorial uh, statutes for territorial courts in the 19th century. They're phrased the same way. Not the judicial power of the United States, but the judicial power of the territory of the territory. So the idea is that each of these territories has its own judicial power. Uh, it's, it's its own government. And so it can have its own judicial power outside of Article 3. So I have to admit, this was part of the paper that I stumbled over a little bit. And because I, I kept thinking to myself, well, even though the territories were the territory of Florida, territory, you know, the Northwest territories, you go into the, the old Northwest ordinances and, and so on, or the Northwest ordinance and so on. That was a creature of the national government of the United States. But the point then is that those tribunals, even when they exercised a judicial power, it was not a judicial power of the United States, sort of of nationwide uh, import. It was of the separate subunit uh, that was of some sort of, you know, organization of government for a specific territory, but but wasn't part of the federal government as a whole. Or, or is that right? Could you spell yeah, that out a little bit? Yeah, that's right. And I should say from the beginning, I should just say, uh, and apologies to people who hate these things, which usually include most of my students, you know, this is ultimately a 19th century legal fiction. So yeah. ultimately, the paper is trying, we've had these territorial courts from the founding, and the question is why? And the answer is, we had this legal fiction. Now, legal fictions are always frustrating. So of course, there's a way in which you'd say it's all the United States. But this is the legal fiction that that we use, that we've been using for a long time. So I think it's helpful to understand it, no matter what. So that's exactly right. Is that to think it's its own government. And now here, just just to then then once you start reading legal fictions, at least if you're a lawyer, you tend to go native on them. So here's why the legal fiction actually makes a lot of sense. So like states, uh, territorial governments have their own boundaries. They're not nationwide governments. They don't apply to the whole United States. They apply to an area. They have their own members, right? They have people who are citizens of the territory, uh, not just floating around anywhere. So again, they're sort of, they're not like the, the cabinet departments or the administrative agencies. They even have a sort of popular sovereignty. For the most part, the territories actually were sort of organized in practical terms, you know, sometimes before they even become a territory, because people go out there, start settling something, and then ultimately we admit it uh, as a territory. And, of course, there's a big sense in which everything is a creature of, of federal law. Like, you might say, okay, apart from the 13 states that were colonies once upon a time, every time Congress recognizes a new state... There's a way in which you could say that state is just a creature of federal law. It wouldn't be right. a state if Congress hadn't admitted it. But we say, oh, yeah, that's true. But now it's a state. It's got its own legal identity. It gets to have its own courts. Mm-hmm. And the same thing is true of the territories. There are a bunch of people out there in Louisiana or Indiana or Minnesota. Congress admits them as a territory, and now they've got their own government. Mm-hmm. And the last thing I'd say is, is if I'm wrong about this, uh, it's not just courts. There would be an issue. So territories had their own legislatures, and they weren't – uh, appointed by the president or according to any of the procedures you would expect an officer of the United States to be appointed according to. And I think it's for the same reason. They were officers of their territories. So they got to come up through the territorial process. So if territorial government is a thing at all, territorial courts are part of that thing. Yeah, I think that I think that really is the, the key point, right? That if you're wrong about this, it just unspools everything about territories and, and their governance in general, right? Right. The, and, right. and I, I should say, the Supreme Court has a case this term uh, about Puerto Rico bankruptcy in right. which it might decide to unspool everything about territories in general. Yeah. I don't think well, it will. 
but yeah. Well, I'm glad your article is out on time then. Um, <laughs> so, so let's focus back for the rest of our chat on the first part of that then, which I think is, the, as you note, the, the part most relevant to our audience is what constitutes the judicial power. And, and um, I, I jotted down your exact words of the point I tried to make earlier because I think it was exactly right. You say adjudication, adjudication need not single, signal judicial power. And then you add, instead of getting distracted by the widespread use of adjudicative procedures, uh, one should instead ask what power is at issue. And that's what yes. we described a little bit earlier. And it's this power to issue binding judgments that affect one's rights. Um, although then we, re we walk into the, the question of the public rights, private rights dispute. Um, I'm not going to dive sort of headfirst into that. Rather, I'm going to sort of follow the way you frame it. You say there are basically three ways to look at constitutional adjudication um, under ter within territories and agencies, right? Sometimes yeah. a tribunal will exercise judicial power, but it's not the judicial power of the United States. So that's the state courts, the tribunals, and so on. Or sorry, yeah. territorial courts and so on. Yes. Then you say some exercise executive power, not judicial power. And there you're talking a lot about those classically uh, conceived of public rights cases. Although, of course, that category gets a little messy, but you're talking about uh, the government having created a privilege, um, uh, also creating the procedure by which the executive branch decides whether you're entitled to that that benefit or not, right? Yes. Okay. And then the third, and this is the complicated one, you say sometimes there's adjudication that's done um, uh, by bodies with no governmental power at all. And what you, you suggest here is things like tribunals that operate only by the consent of the parties, um, or as adjuncts to the courts. And that really is, I think, the, the core of, of, of the thorniest cases in administrative law, in adjudication. Um, I have to admit that it's what always trips me up. Adjudication is always my least favorite part of administrative law to teach, and therefore also probably my least, the least favorite part of, for my students to learn. Um, but could you unpack that third category about consent yeah. of the parties and, and or adjuncts yeah. to the courts? Yeah, let's unpack the third category, and then and then we can talk about where things got confused. Yeah, because uh, I think we didn't used to be confused, but we've gotten confused, like most things in administrative law. Mm -hmm. uh, so the the easiest the easiest way to think of a, a sort of a no power adjudication is like a real legitimate arbitration. You know, you and I have a disagreement. We go hire a third guy. He's just a guy. <laughs> maybe he's a retired judge. Maybe he just works for the the AAA. And we say, can you resolve our dispute? We both agree to do whatever you say. And so he has an adjudication between us. He does a thing that looks a lot like a court. And at the end, he decides who wins. And the loser has to obey because at the beginning, we said, we agree to do whatever you say. Right. He's got no power at all uh, other than the power given to him by a contract. Right. right. And so no, there, no governmental power. No governmental power. So that's the easiest sort of no power case. The harder one uh, is, is somebody like uh, a law clerk is the easiest way to think of it, I think, is the easiest place to start. So a law clerk who works for a judge, right, depending on the judge, does a lot of things that a judge could do. The law mm -hmm. clerk might read the briefs. They might go to oral argument. They won't ask questions, but they might write the first draft of the opinion, depending on the judge. That might be the final draft of the opinion. Uh, that law clerk is not a judge, so it seems troubling. But it's okay because in the end, the judge reads the opinion and decides whether to issue it under the judge's own name. Uh, so the law clerk isn't, doesn't have any power of their own, any governmental power. They work for the government, but they don't do anything until a court says boo. So then maybe the next step out sort of on this, on this, on this, uh, 
these these concentric circles, the next step out might be the magistrate judge. Yes. Or, or the so, bankruptcy judge. Yes. So so here's I mean so here's basically now this is where we got confused. Yeah. So once upon a time, I think the two categories of sort of permissible agency adjudication would have been either sort of good executive power cases. Uh, the executive is deciding whether to do something that's a pure privilege. They're going to decide whether to grant you some land or grant you a, a license that's totally in the executive branch's discretion. They can do that, you know, on their own power. That's just an executive decision. They can have an adjudication if they want to. It's just like the, the you know, your pardoned reality show. And then the other category would be a no power case, somebody who's more like a commissioner to the courts. So it's really the court who's going to decide, but the commissioner goes out like a special master, gathers some facts, issues a preliminary sort of report and recommendation, which is what today's magistrate judges do in some cases. And that would be okay for a totally different reason, not because it's executive power, but because it's not any power at all. It's just a recommendation to the judge, and the judge will decide what to do. Yeah. When with the rise of the administrative state after the New Deal, and Crowell versus Benson's a little bit responsible for this, the ICC's a little bit responsible for this. There, there are a bunch of different sort of little moments that move us towards this. We sort of took those two categories and smushed them together. So we have agencies that do something that's not really a privilege, right? They might fine you or take away some some common law right, but they're not locking you up either. <laughs> so it's sort of like somewhere on the privilege to, to uh, private right spectrum. And they're not really an adjunct uh, because they get to make factual determinations that are binding. It's not, it's, you know, that the court has to review deferentially, uh, but there's some judicial review. So they're sort of like halfway between a law clerk and uh, a judge. And we let them do kind of both those things together. So we took sort of like half of the half of the executive power and half of the no power and said, well, that's good enough for government work. Yeah. Well, so, so much of this is confused, I think, also by our, our shifting view of what it is that agencies do in general. Right. You mentioned the Interstate Commerce Commission. Um, you know, when that was created, it really wasn't created as a replacement for or an adjunct to the executive branch, even though now we think of in independent commissions as, you know, more or less exercising executive power. Um, but but when it was originally created, the ICC really was created uh, as a as a substitute for an adjunct to the district courts that would otherwise be making common law decisions about common carriers, yes. right? And this is what Tom Merrill uh, sketches out in his article on on uh, Article Three and the origins of the, the appellate model of judicial review of agencies. Yes. Um, and over time, the ICC is given more power, power to enforce its own judgments and so on. And over time, other executive agencies crop up that are doing things that look a lot like what, say, the ICC or the FTC might be doing. And so over time, you get these blurring of the two models. But if we were to sort of look at this from the standpoint of 1887, or I, I can't remember what year the FTC Act was passed, 1912, um, the the distinction might be a little bit clearer, maybe. I, I could be wrong. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, and so so can we zoom out for a second on, on two things this this, yeah, sure. this brings to mind. So one is uh this this blurring, I think, has happened in other places in the administrative state. You know, I mean, you know this is better than I do, but there was a real formalist logic to some of the things they did in the in the when they created the administrative state. Not not always logic I agree with, but mm -hmm. Humphrey's executor says that it's okay to have these commissioners who are not answerable to the president, not directly answerable to the president, because they're not really executive at all, right? They're these quasi-legislative, quasi-judicial, you know, they're not executive, so it's okay. 
Yeah. And then over time, uh, the courts, the courts ignore that logic and say, no, no, of course they're executive. So instead, Humphrey's executor stands for the proposition that the executive doesn't have to control, have control over the executive branch. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's really funny. If you go back and look at the briefs that were filed in Humphrey's executor, the Roosevelt administration's argument is basically uh, along the lines of, well, even though independent commissions used to be different, now what they do has come to be so similar to what executive branches, executive agencies do, or what executive agencies do now look so close to what independent commissions do, that the distinction needs to be wiped away. It was the Roosevelt administration that was saying it's time to change sort of right. the paradigm of this. Um, right. But, you know, 50 years later, um, the, the world sort of came around to the Roosevelt view and actually sort of forgot that the pre-Roosevelt view ever existed. Right. And then the other sort of bigger theme going on here is the... Uh, uh, somebody, uh, Philip Hamburger, has called this the uh, the less is more phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Uh, that sometimes when you broaden the scope of a right or of, some, of judicial review, you end up getting uh, less for everybody. Uh, mm-hmm. so maybe maybe it's more is less. That must be what he calls it. That would be a better title. Uh, it's, well, it's, it's like when you inflate a currency. Uh, you, <laughs> there's more there's more currency, but it's all worth less. Yeah. So in the 1960s, the Supreme Court broadened the scope of what counts as property and liberty, purposes right. of the Due Process Clause, starting right. in Goldberg versus Kelly, Matthews versus Eldridge. So it took a bunch of things that once upon a time would have been pure privileges and said, no, no, they get due process. But they weren't willing to live with what would have been the consequences of the of getting of being life, liberty, or property. Namely, you get a real Article Three court because they could, didn't actually want to have Article Three courts for every you know depri- deprivation of welfare benefits. So they said, okay, you get you know it's property, but you only get sort of uh, much less process. Right. So and that's kind of the the picture we've seen in general judicial review of the administrative state. Once upon a time, there would have been some decisions that got full judicial review uh, because only a court could authorize the deprivation, and some that got no judicial review because it's a pure privilege. Right. And we broadened the presumption of judicial review to everything. Uh, everybody gets judicial review, but we watered down the judicial review you get. <laughs> so everybody yeah. gets judicial review, and it's all kind of crappy. I think another example of this is is the sort of rise of administrative law judges, a term that I worry sort of confuses things more than it clarifies, right? As, as you, you make a move in the mid-20th century to start referring to these hearing officers and other decision makers as administrative law judges, you're sort of increasing people's expectations of their independence in a way, but you haven't actually given them real independence of, of Article Three judges, right? You're trying yes. to use the term to signify more than the office can really plausibly sustain, or maybe more than the office should sustain, as we now have debates over how independent ALJs should be. The people are looking for both the efficiency of administration and the executive branch, um, but with some kind of independence of judges. And at some point, that that term administrative law judge, I think, confuses uh, more than it clarifies. Yes. And so this is one of the things I wrestled with when I wrote the paper, uh, is if I had my way, we would not call administrative law judges judges. We would not call magistrate judges judges. We would not call bankruptcy judges judges because none of them are judges in the constitutional sense. None of them exercise judicial power. We would not call the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces a court. We would not call the Tax Court a court. We would not call bankruptcy courts courts. And in an early draft, I tried to uh, to do that or to use scare quotes every time I, I used one of these terms. Yeah. But A, it looked obnoxious. Uh, and B, it's always good I mean, to avoid. 
<laughs> well, uh, law professors can get away with it sometimes. Uh, and B, you know, that is their name. Like statutorily, they are called the Court of Appeals of the Armed Forces. Yeah. So I, I, uh, I gave up. But, yeah. but I do, I, I worry about it a lot. The Court of Appeals of the Armed Forces is actually doing, a, well, was going to do an oral argument at the University of Chicago Law School before everything shut down, and is still sort of doing it uh, remotely. And I. I have been a nightmare to my students because every time they tell me they're attending the Court of Appeals to the Armed Forces argument, I say, not a court. <laughs> you, you could just say the so-called Court of Appeals. Well, that's the uh, the original draft of this paper was called uh, so-called courts. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> that's good. Um, sorry, I cut you off. Yeah, I was just going to say I didn't think it would age well. No. So um, what you yeah, at one point, sort of at the turning point of your paper, when you go from diagnosing history to sort of explaining what this all means in practice, the, the way you, you describe the task at hand, I quite like that you said this is a, a sympathetic reconstruction of historical practice, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. You're you're trying to now you're not saying that everything that's been done before is correct. In fact, you're not you're saying the opposite that there are some places, including recent cases, where things get more and more confused and unsustainable. But you're trying to give more credit to the past without saying. Um, without depre- without deprecating the constitutional text, right? Yeah. It's not that we're choosing text over practice and we're not choosing practice over text. We're finding a way to best align the practice with the text, which I want to say for, for our audience um, is uh, Professor Bode's project in a number of recent papers, especially his paper on constitutional liquidation, um, the, the Madisonian uh, view of, of ascertaining constitutional meaning, which I, I urge everybody to run out and read. Um, but we'll get back to that maybe another time. Um, but but taking a sympathetic account of, of history and trying to unpack what the constitutional text really means in practice today. And so you again break things down into three categories, right? On the limits of, of sorry, looking at agency adjudication specifically, you have sort of three basic principles, right? One is that an agency adjudicator cannot single-handedly deprive you of life, liberty, and property. Or, or maybe I should say the agency yeah. adjudicator um, must not be allowed to single-handedly deprive you of life, liberty, or property without the due process of law. That's the sort of the, the overarching protection of due process through the courts. Um, there is, you say, uh, there is a second category, though, where the executive branch, um, or sorry, where, where a tribunal might be able to satisfy um, the requirements of due process, even without a court. And you cite the case of Murray's Lessee, which maybe we'll circle back to. Um, and then that third category, if, if I remember correctly, is is these where the court, the agency really isn't exercising judicial power at all. It's just an adjunct to the courts. So that's something like a version of the bankruptcy courts, or even say a version of Maybe the CFTC's adjudicative power in the, the 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 fairly recent case CFTC versus Shore, where they had some power to decide issues, but subject to some judicial review. And there was and consent. On. Yeah, and there was and there was and the court highlights consent. Now the court, when it focuses in that case on those factors, kind of blurs what the real principle it's upholding is. But, yes. but let me just, before I sort of keep blathering on, why don't you just explain uh, what I just tried to explain, which is how should we think about agency adjudication specifically in light of the constitutional principles you've unpacked? Yeah. No, and I think you're right at a high level. This is all an exercise in, in what Madison would have called liquidation. And people go look that up if they want to know what that word means. Yeah. But basically... Federal's yeah, 37, a, everybody. Yeah, Federal's 37. <laughs> we, ha- we have a lot of practice and we have yeah. the constitutional text. 
And, I, you know, we often worry about what to do if those two things are in conflict. But I think we shouldn't be too quick to think they're in conflict. So we should try to figure out, is there some logic to this? And if there is, maybe we can, maybe we can work with that. So, and, and my view is, just as you said, there basically, there is a logic here that's gotten, that's gotten blurred. Uh, and so the logic is that, that administrative agencies can, yeah, they can act as pure executive power, doing things that, that are privileges that, that really don't require judicial review at all. Which the APA is like a nice, a nice additional thing Congress has given us, but not anything we'd be entitled to. Right. There are a few that that executive power is mostly privileges, but it may also sometimes be things that are like temporary adjudications where there'll be judicial review soon in the future, or or special circumstances like the military. Um, but pure executive power, or they can do things that are no power at all because the, the judicial review is you know really there uh, in full force or there's consent. So they're not really exercising the, the coercive force of the executive. The CFTC is a good example of that. Yeah. What's a mistake, and unfortunately is the main way of thinking about this now, is to take those two things and kind of smush them together and water them both down. So mm-hmm. we say, and this is how the court actually says in a lot of its administrative adjudication cases, uh, like CFTC versus Shore. They say, well, this is kind of a privilege because it involves federal statutes and sort of stuff that involves commerce clause. It's kind of a privilege or kind of public in some way. And it's kind of, you know, not totally just executive power because there will be some judicial review later, although it's not complete and, you know, consent, but they don't really explain why that's important. So all things considered, it seems okay to us. You know, the problem with that is it's no way to run an administrative state. Every agency has some of each and then how much of each is okay and how do you quantify them and what's going on here. And so I think we actually get more clarity by keeping the two categories separate, uh, especially because, in a way, the two categories are at war with one another, right? One are areas of executive power, where to be constitutional, we need to make sure the executive has control over it. And the other is an area of judicial power, where to be constitutional, we need to make sure the judiciary has control over it. Uh, And sometimes if you try to make make a branch accountable to both, you end up with neither. Now, even if we could really distinguish, you know, draw hard lines that the agencies would have to follow in terms of how much adjudicatory power they could have, um, the the one prong in particular, you know, the, the extent to which the agency's adjudication is subject to judicial review, right, that yeah. that becomes challenging in an era where judicial review isn't always very strict, right? If courts are, are deferential um, on factual findings, say, in an agency adjudication, um, it's, it's an open question over whether the agency really is giving, uh, sorry, whether the court really is sufficiently in control for purposes of uh, your framework, Right. Yes. The, the, this last factor of of making sure that an agency adjudication on matters that need to be controlled by courts really are controlled by courts. That then at some point is going to become uh, a, a test of agency. Doc, sorry, uh, administrative law doctrines of, of deference um, uh, and, you know, s- standards of review. Right. Yes, that's that's exactly right. That's exactly yeah. right. The, if we're going to go down the route of saying sort of agencies are are just adjuncts to the court. We're going to have to look much more carefully about what courts defer to them on. Uh, hard to imagine justifying deference in questions of law. Not even clear you could justify deference in questions of fact. Maybe you could have a sort of de facto deference where courts, you know, are looking at the facts de novo, but accept the agency's conclusions on a, the way they would under Skidmore. Maybe that would be okay because it's, you know, about something other than power. But that's all going to come under 
come under great pressure. I, I should say now, I, I think I've survived long enough into the podcast that I'm finally allowed to make the concession that, you know, this doesn't solve everything. Uh, <laughs> the ba- the well, bad news is... Yeah, let's yeah. finish with that. What doesn't it solve? Okay. Well, so it, it opens up, I mean, it opens up two other big questions that probably people who care about the administrative state are already thinking about. One is the scope of the non-delegation doctrine. Mm-hmm. So in thinking about some of these, uh, some of these judicial review questions, part of part of what's lying underneath this, what we say, can you defer to the executive branch on some question is, is this a question that Congress had to decide or could Congress have said, well, whatever the agency thinks is fine? Yeah. Because if Congress can say whatever the agency thinks is fine, then it might be judicial review will be more limited because judicial review will just be to make sure the agency is staying within the scope of their of their delegation. Right. The more we think there have to be real limits on executive power, the more we need the courts to enforce them. So I may have nailed down one of the moving pieces in the three uh, branches, but there's still going to be some warring in the other two. Yeah. The other big question is uh, privileges and licenses. So a formalist law professor, John Harrison, one of the smartest law professors in the academy, uh, has an article taking the view that on almost anything, Congress can say the following, <clears throat> you know, you cannot do this in interstate commerce, period, unless you get a license. And then if you want a license, that's a pure privilege and we can attach whatever conditions we want to. Hmm. Um, sort of uh, uh, the extreme uh, the extreme solution to the unconstitutional conditions problem. Um, if that's okay, and I'm not convinced it is, but he has some good arguments. If that's okay, then a lot of agency adjudication could be upheld on the grounds that it's not really depriving you of liberty or property. We would say, well, look, Congress has control over the market for interstate securities. So if it wants to tell you, you can only trade securities on the interstate market if you agree to let the SEC fine you uh, without a judicial hearing, mm-hmm. you know, you agreed to it. Uh, so if you have a broad enough view of Congress's sort of power to do that, then it, we could end up letting agencies do a lot of things. But, but that's got to be the argument. That's the only way to uphold that kind of power. Well, I suppose you can go on to solve those two issues in your next two papers, right? <laughs> <laughs> I keep hoping somebody else will do it, but uh, nobody does that. I guess I'll have to. Well, I think a lot of people will be focused, especially on non-delegation in the aftermath of the of the Gundy decision. Um, but more generally, uh, in recent years, as as our audience knows, uh, Supreme Court justices and lower court judges and scholars have returned to a variety of sort of long sort of settled questions to really try to think anew about them. It's one of the reasons why the Gray Center exists. And I, I, I suspect your paper is going to play a significant role uh, in, in helping to further encourage those reexaminations, both uh, in the court and in the academy. Uh, now, this podcast uh, certainly can't do justice to your entire paper, especially with, uh, with, with, with me as the host. So I'd encourage everybody to read uh, this paper. It's titled Adjudication Outside of Article 3. It's the lead article in the Harvard Law Review, Volume 133, Number 5, March 2020. And uh, Will, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me.